Let's pray together. Father, we know that the evil one wants to come into this room and to steal away your word. We are praying against him. We are praying that your word would go forth in truth, that your people would hear it, that it would take root, and that it would transform our lives. Father, we know how intractable sometimes our sin seems to us. And so, Father, we are asking you to deliver us from evil and to renew us, renew our minds so that we can be like our Lord Jesus. We want to be the people that you've called us to be. So, Father, shine a ray of light into our hearts. Call your people forth by this word. Let no opposition stand in our hearts or in the air and the principalities. Defeat all of it. So, Father, open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants is that which produces reverence for thee. Father, we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famous, famously wrote about what he called cheap grace. And this is how he described it. And I'm going to read to you an extended excerpt from The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer says this, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to the idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. Let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. That is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. 
Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Bottom line on cheap grace, cheap grace is actually no grace at all. It is an illusion that says you can do as you will with your life even as you profess to follow Christ. Oh, how common this notion of grace has become in so many evangelical churches and in so many evangelical hearts today. Maybe you've heard it before. Preached from a pulpit somewhere. It's the grace that promises to rescue us, but not to renew us. It's the grace that offers to save us from hell, but not from our sin. It's the grace that accepts all sinners into the church, but offers no discipline for sin within the church. Any so-called grace that leaves a man a slave to his sin is really no grace at all. Why? Because grace is not merely the deliverance from judgment. It is deliverance from what makes us worthy of judgment. That is what grace does. It is a powerful transformation of your life. And if you have not experienced that kind of grace, then you haven't experienced God's grace. This is what Paul is trying to clarify in his letter to Titus, Titus, at least in part. I want you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15 today. And as we saw last time, Paul is writing to Pastor Titus to exhort his people to live their lives in a way that is fitting with sound doctrine. And Paul tells Titus to give specific instructions to different kinds of people within the church. Last time we saw what Paul said about older men, older women, younger women. Today, we're focusing on what Paul says about younger men, about Titus himself, the pastor, and about slaves who are in the congregation. And really, ultimately, what Paul is saying about every person in the congregation in terms of what effect grace is supposed to have on their lives. And it does not leave them unchanged. And so in verses 6 through 15, Paul is explaining what grace does. What grace does, first of all, in young men and in Titus. What grace does in the slaves of that congregation. And what grace does in all of us. That's where we're going. So the first thing is this. What grace does in the young men and in Titus. Look at verses 6 through 8. Paul says this. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, just like Paul commanded the older men, the older women, the younger women, now he's commanding the younger men, be self-controlled. It's the one term that he uses with reference to every single one of these groups that he's listed so far. All of them are supposed to be this way. Self-controlled. It means to be prudent, reasonable, sensible, serious. 
The person with self-control is someone who embodies all of the virtues that have already been named for the other people in this list. These young men likewise are to be like this, self-control. So young men, what this means for you is that if you are going to follow Christ, you are going to be different from what other young men are doing today. You are a part of a generation of young men that have given themselves over to foolishness. You are a part of a generation of young men that have given themselves over to pornography. Self-control means that you are not going to have anything to do with that. You are a part of a generation of unserious young men that delays marriage and goes in and out of unserious relationships throughout young adulthood. Self-control means that you don't have anything to do with that. You are a part of a generation that strategizes to maximize leisure and amusement for itself. Self-control means that you don't have anything to do with that either. Self-control means that your yes means yes and your no means no. It means people can count on you to do a job and to do it right. It means a wife and kids can count on you to be there for them in all that God has called you to be and not spinning your wheels chasing your own vanity. Younger men, you be self-controlled. You do not partake of the spirit of the age, which is taking you out of control and making you a slave to your passions. Self-control means that you are so possessed by the Holy Spirit that you do not run after the passions of youth. Rather, you run after Christ, you run after his word, and you run after his glory. That's what it means to be self-controlled. And so Paul commands the young men to be this way. But then look what he does. He immediately turns his attention directly to Titus, the pastor to whom he is writing. And he says to Titus in verse 7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So Paul's turning directly to Titus and he's saying, look, Titus, you are supposed to be a model of all these virtues that you are preaching to the others in the congregation. In other words, it's not enough for Titus to teach faithfully as a pastor. He has to live faithfully as a Christian. If he can't live faithfully as a Christian, then he's not qualified to teach others to live faithfully as Christians. He can't teach others to do what he himself cannot do or will not do. As a pastor, he has to show the way. And that means he's supposed to be able to look around and say to the, say the young men in the congregation, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. So he's saying, you show yourself an example, a model of good works. People are supposed to look at you and are supposed to say, okay, that's how it's done. Paul specifies three ways in which Titus, this church leader, is supposed to show himself to be a model. The first way is he says he's got to have integrity in teaching. Look what he says. He says, in your teaching, integrity. And this word translated as integrity literally means incorruption. 
the, the, the accent is upon the fact that there's nothing in it that defiles it or, or kills it. The false teachers had all kinds of self-serving poison in their teaching and doctrine. In contrast, Titus was to have none of this in his teaching and doctrine. He was to be a model of incorruption, as it were, in his teaching. But he's also supposed to have dignity. Now, this is a fascinating word. The, the, the word that's translated as dignity means something like seriousness, um, probity, holiness. The Latin uh, translation of this word is gravitas. When Titus stands in the pulpit or relates to his people, he's supposed to have a certain weight about him. Seriousness, not lightness. And then he says this, you're supposed to show yourself an example of integrity and teaching, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Some people think that he may be talking about just Titus's speech in general. I think this is most likely a reference to his teaching in particular. His teaching is supposed to have two characteristics. It's supposed to be healthy, sound teaching in the sense of being uncorrupted, but then it also must be uncondemned. You notice he says there, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now, that doesn't mean that when Titus preaches, he shouldn't ever be criticized or condemned by anybody. Okay? It means that there must never be any proper basis for whatever condemnations may come. That's what he means. So what a pastor's teaching ministry is supposed to look like is right here. It's in accord with the apostolic norm, free from all the stuff that would corrupt it. And it's delivered with gravitas and weight. It doesn't mean that all humor is wrong. It simply means that it's backed up by the weight of holiness and earnestness for the truth. Preaching is not a laugh-a-thon or a joke fest. It's not airy anecdotes and lightness. It is blood-earnest exposition of God's truth because of what is at stake. So he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. What good works? Well, he focuses on Titus's ministry of teaching and preaching. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. And then he gives the purpose. So that an opponent may not be may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us did you notice that the purpose of the preacher's exemplary conduct and teaching is so that there will be no just grounds for condemnation but guess who the condemnation comes to if this guy falls the condemnation comes on us the whole congregation which is a word not just about the pastor's testimony, but it's a, it's a word about every single individual in this room's testimony. Your testimony is a reflection on all of us. That's why we as a community are concerned about one another and how we are doing. Our witness is not an individual thing. It is a corporate thing. Paul saying to Titus, you need to be an example of good work so that nobody can have a basis to say anything bad about us. But he's saying there can be no just grounds for condemnation. Make no mistake. Condemnation will come to a pastor if he is preaching the word of God. People will condemn him for it. It's just going to happen. 
But this is saying, Paul is saying that that condemnation must have no basis in fact. Why? So that they can be put, so the opponents can be put to shame and not the preacher and the message that he's preaching. The preacher's character in life should offer no occasion for anyone to say anything against him or against the message that will, that will stick. This came home to me in spades last summer when a, a popular blogger and a, a guy who's a pastor wrote an essay online condemning something that I had written years before, basically charging it with what would amount to be heresy. And if it were true, it would have been grounds for my dismissal from teaching the seminary, certainly grounds for dismissal from being a pastor here at the church. The accusations were false, and they were really based on an uncharitable twisting of words that I had used in an essay that I wrote. And even though the accusations were made publicly, I didn't respond publicly. I contacted this guy in private, and I said, this is what you're accusing me of. I don't actually believe, <laughs> and did not, never believed. But he dug his heels in. He wouldn't budge. And we had this correspondence back and forth. I tried to, as nicely as I could, tell him that he had it wrong. And at one point, I was, I was including Jim in this correspondence. It was going back and forth. And at one point, Jim decided to reply to me to tell me what he was thinking about the whole thing. And he accidentally hit reply all. <laughs> and uh, so this guy, this critic got an, an earful from Jim. <laughs> and uh, once Jim was in, he decided to go all in. <laughs> and I'll have to say, I've probably never been more grateful for Jim or more appreciative of Jim than in this moment because he just went after it. He, he, he wasn't angry, he wasn't mean, but he was tough. And he made the case from the essay that I had written that the guy had obviously misrepresented my views. He didn't have to go outside of it. He went to the words that I used and said, you've got this wrong. Here it is. And he, he kept after him like a bulldog until the guy removed this, the, the accusations. And so he showed that his condemnation had no basis in reality. And I think that this is what Paul is trying to say here. You're not going to be free from criticism or condemnation if you're preaching the truth. He's saying that whatever criticism or condemnation comes cannot have any basis to it. It should not have any basis to it. It doesn't mean that a pastor is going to be perfect, but it certainly means that a pastor is, is um, not regularly putting out false teaching. And if he is confronted with something that is in error, he doesn't dig his heels in. He turns from it. But he's saying that this, there should be no condemnation. Teaching should have no condemnation like that. So this is what grace does in young men and in, in pastors like Titus. It causes young men to be self-controlled. It causes pastors to have faithful teaching. But the second thing that Paul mentions is what grace does in slaves. Look at verses 9 to 10. He uses this word bondservants. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now that word translated as bondservants in the ESV is the term that's regularly used throughout the New Testament to refer to slaves. 
And these were real live slaves. Slaves in the Roman world were under the absolute control of their masters. And guess what? They were getting saved in the first century. They were in the churches. And they had an obligation to follow Christ in the situation they were in, which was a very difficult situation. They were the property of their masters, and they had to do whatever their masters told them to do. And their masters had the coercive, could use coercive violence against them if they didn't do what they were told to do. The, the master had the power of life and death over his slave. He could take his life if he wanted because his slave was his property to do with as, as he pleased. What would you do if you were born into that situation or brought into that situation and then Jesus called you to be his follower? Even though Paul urges believing slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, this does not mean that Paul was endorsing slavery as an institution. You will sometimes hear people claim that the Bible endorses slavery as an institution. That's, that's not right. Calling on a slave to submit to a master is not the same thing as endorsing slavery. And any more than when Paul told um, the Christians in Rome to submit to their government, then that Paul was endorsing the Roman government that crucified Jesus. He was not doing that. So calling someone to submit to an authority is not an unqualified endorsement of the authority or the institution that, that, that upholds it. I gave a long sermon on this when we... Uh, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, which was also dealing with slavery. I'm going to resist the temptation to go back into that material. But everything that I said about slavery still stands here. And I invite you to go back and look at that message if, if, uh, if you haven't heard it yet. So calling on a slave to submit to a master is not the same thing as endorsing slavery. Rather, it's trying to explain how believing saves can glorify God in a very bad situation. And that's something that every single one of us can relate to. Because we're often going to be in very bad situations in which we are called to render difficult obedience to Jesus. The word Paul uses for, for to be in subjection is a word that's used to describe not just slaves. It's the same word that's used in Titus chapter 3 and verse 1 to talk about how the citizen is supposed to submit to his own government. It's a word that's used in 1 Corinthians 14 of how prophets are supposed to be subject to other prophets. It's a, it's a term that's used of wives and their obligation to follow the leadership of their, of their husbands in Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. So this, is not a, this term, be subject, is not a term of derision but of deference to authority. Even though in this particular use, the authority has, is, is problematic. But even so, there's lessons here for, for all of us. Paul emphasizes four items here about what their subjection was supposed to look like. He says, verse 9, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So two positive obligations on the outside and on the inside, two negative ones. Well-pleasing. Well-pleasing means that this worker, this slave, is supposed to render positive and winsome action, not just passive submission. He's supposed to be actively look, looking for ways to bless the person that he's working for. Not argumentative is the idea of talking back to an authority, 
shooting off the mouth because you don't like the boss or what he's doing. And so you sandbag him with arguments and with resistance. He says, you don't do that. Proper deference to authority is not act like that. Not pilfering, which means not stealing or skimming off of the top to take that which does not belong to you. I think that this would have been a particular temptation for those who think that they can steal things from their employer because they think their employer may not miss things in small quantities. And so they might justify their actions by claiming that the employer actually owed that stuff to them. You can skim from, slaves could skim from their employers, you can skim from your employer. Really easy to rationalize, especially if you don't like them. In contrast, Paul says the Lord's worker has to have all good faith, which means even when nobody's looking, you're doing the right thing. You're trustworthy. Even if your employer is not trustworthy, you are trustworthy. When I was in high school, we had a, a revival at our church that led to a lot of public uh, confession of, of sin. And one of the confessions that came, came from one of the ministers at the church. It was the minister of education. And among his responsibilities, he was to, um, he was supposed to plan and lead events for the senior adults in our church. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but he would plan these events for them. And oftentimes they would take the church bus and travel together to some location or activity. And the senior adults would pay money to cover the expenses for the trip. But in one of these revival uh, meetings that we had, uh, this minister came to the front of the congregation, came up to the microphone, and he confessed that whenever there was any money left over, after expenses were covered, he just kept it. He didn't tell anybody. He didn't ask for it. He just kept the money. Took it for himself. And he said he rationalized it like it was an honorarium, like it was owed to him. But he just took it. And so he came to the front to say I'm, he was under conviction that he was stealing. Talk about a humiliating but necessary moment in his life and in the life of our church. Because of how often we rationalize things and do things that are actually bringing a discredit to the gospel and are killing our souls. I wonder how many of you here may be falling for the temptation to pilfer from your employer and to be unfaithful. You are taking things that don't belong to you. Maybe it's actual money, some kind of an object. I don't know. Maybe it's just the time that he's paying you for, and when nobody's looking, you're not doing the work. Our witness depends on Christian workers being faithful at their work. Why? Paul says it. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn the doctrine of God our Savior means simply to cause something to have an attractive appearance. You've got this message that you're supposed to be out there sharing with the people in your life. This message that they are perhaps associating you with. Are you making that message more beautiful to them? 
Or are you making it less beautiful to them? There is nothing more unattractive than a lazy and unfaithful worker. Nobody's interested in serving the God of such a person. But there will be lots of people who will have their interest piqued in the gospel that you believe because of your faithfulness and the way that you do things at work. The way to beautify the doctrine that you believe in is to adorn it with a holy life. Which means you're going to act and behave a certain way before your employer and before the people that you work with. You live a holy life. That is the compelling proof of the gospel that cannot be denied. And if these slaves that Paul was writing to were able to honor the authorities in their lives when they were slaves and they had masters, we have no excuse for failing to honor authorities in our lives. Their obedience was much more difficult than ours. We don't have an excuse here. So Paul's talking about what grace does in the young men and in Titus. He's talking about what grace does in slaves and in by implication by any worker. But finally, he talks about what grace does in all of us. Everybody look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Verse 11 explains why all these believers, the old men, the old women, the young women, the young men, Titus, the slaves, it's explaining why all these believers are supposed to live upright lives fitting with sound doctrine. It's because that kind of life is the necessary outflow of having experienced the grace of God. If that kind of transformation is absent in a person's life, then so also is the grace of God absent in a person's life. Because that's what the true grace of God does. How do we know that? Well, look what the text says. It says the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God refers to the favor that God bestows on sinners who don't deserve God's favor. God's favor towards his people causes things to happen within his people. Grace causes at least three things to happen. Paul enumerates them. Grace saves. In fact, you could translate this literally as the saving grace of God has appeared to all people. God rescues sinners from the judgment they deserve because of grace. That's what grace does. It rescues from judgment. It rescues from sin. But it also does this, Paul says. It appears, he says, to all people. I think when he says the grace of God has appeared to all people. I think he's referring to the, the unique historical appearance of Christ in history. Christ showed up and people could see him and now they could still see him in the proclamation of the gospel. We can still see him in the proclamation of the gospel. Grace has appeared to all people. All people here, I don't think, implies that all people get saved. That would be universalism, which is Clearly not the teaching of, of Scripture. So all people doesn't imply universalism as if God's grace guarantees that everybody gets saved. 
Rather, all people refers, I think, to all classes of people who find themselves converted to Christ. You say, well, that's convenient, Denny. Why do you, why do you think that? They kind of make that up? No, I didn't make that up. Um, Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.10, we've set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, namely of those who believe. Paul has already defined all people in terms of all those who believe, but the accent here is on all kinds of people who believe. Guess, guess what? He's just listed all kinds of people, the old people, the young people, the slaves, all kinds of people. The grace of God has appeared to all, and it saves them. But look at the last thing it does. It saves them, it appears to all people, but it says it teaches believers. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that word translated as training means to discipline. Grace disciplines us to teach us. It teaches us two things, according to this verse. It teaches us repentance and faithfulness. But guess what? Repentance and faithfulness is not a one-time thing. It is a way of life for us. Look what he says. Where do you see repentance? It teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's repentance. And it's an ongoing thing. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's faithfulness. Grace teaches us to do that and disciplines us to do that. It teaches us to repent of ungodly and sinful desires, while at the same time teaching us to live righteously in the present age. So think of this, denying sin, embracing life. These things are only available to us because of God's grace, the ability to do that. No one does these things apart from grace. No one who has experienced saving grace fails to experience these things, denying sin, embracing life. Grace does that kind of training in us. And then notice, says, notice that Paul says in verse 14, of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And you, know, you notice what, what Paul has just done there in verse 14? Grace works repentance and faithfulness in us. Guess why Christ died according to verse 14? For your repentance and your faithfulness. He died, he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness to take us out of our sinfulness and to purify us. That's faithfulness. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this is all about what the gospel does for us. It do, it's not just purchasing our forgiveness. It's purchasing our faithfulness. Do you see that? Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you which is Paul's personal word to Titus. You stand up and you preach this in the church. You tell the people, this is what the grace of God is doing in them, if it's doing anything at all. And don't let anyone ignore this teaching. You put it in their face and make sure they know what the grace of God does. Why do we need to do that? 
Because frankly, some of us in this room need to be testing ourselves. And there is a danger that some may disregard this teaching. How many people are still under the spell of this error that they think that because they were baptized or maybe because they said a prayer 1,000 years ago or walked down an aisle, they think that they have been saved and yet they have never really turned from their sin to trust in Jesus. They still live quite comfortably in their sin and have deceived themselves that somehow their untransformed lives will be inheriting the kingdom of God. They are sorely mistaken. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Pay attention, close attention to what Jesus said there. He said their untransformed lives are evidence that he did not know them. What came first? Knowing them. If Jesus doesn't know them, their lives remain unchanged. If Jesus knows them, guess what? Their lives are changed. Jesus says this not because we're saved by doing good works, but because we are saved so that we can do good works. A changed life doesn't cause grace. Grace causes a changed life. And it's possible to have a profession of faith without the reality of faith. And those who come to the judgment with a profession of faith and not the reality of faith, they're going to be short at the judgment. You don't want to be one of these people. Paul is saying to Titus, don't let them ignore you on this. Because the you need to test yourselves. I need to test myself. Paul said it in so many words in 2 Corinthians 13, didn't he? Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Unless indeed you fail the test. This is a particular concern for religious people. The people who come to church. And yet outside of these walls are living an untransformed life. Have you experienced the grace of God that trains you to deny ungodliness and to live righteously in the present life? Is that your life? Listen, I'm not talking about perfection in your life. You know I'm not talking about perfection, right? Nobody's going to be perfect on this side of glory. But there is real progress in holiness and real transformation in life that can happen if you've experienced the grace of Christ. And what I'm asking you is, have you experienced that grace? I don't know that anybody in this room can answer that except for yourself. Maybe your spouse. But probably nobody better than you. So you got to be honest and test yourself here. Do you know the grace 
this kind of grace. You say, well, this is heavy and burdensome. It's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be a moment of clarity where you in this moment of hearing God's word can say, my heart is revealed. I know what I am. I know what I'm not. And I'm going to trust in Christ now. Guess what? The grace of God is available to you now. The grace of God has appeared to all. You can respond to this message now. Even if you haven't responded like you were supposed to previously. You can embrace the reality of this grace now. And you must embrace it now. And you have to put off thinking that other things are more important than this. There is nothing more important than this. There is no such thing as cheap grace. There is only costly grace. When we say salvation is free, we mean that it is free to you. But it was very costly to Jesus. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. There is nothing more valuable than that. And that's what it cost to save you. It was costly. It was a very dear price to save you. It wasn't a cheap, cheap grace because it was buying not just your deliverance from judgment, but your deliverance from your sin. That's what he bought for you. Have you experienced that? If you have not, you need to trust in Jesus now. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would call forth your people and that you would break through the lies of Satan and our flesh and that you would make your people believe and come to the light. Let them leave the domain of darkness and come to the light. I'm praying specifically for those in this room who are unconverted. That you would cause them to repent and to believe in the gospel right now. And I'm praying specifically for those in this room who think, who have thought that they were saved up until this point, but they are exposed now. I pray that you would bring them to faith. Transform them and let them know the powerful grace of God. Who can do this but you? We know you can and so we ask you to do it. So Father, we pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.